Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. You know, the Bible tells us to do a lot of things, right? Um, a lot of commands. Do this, don't you dare do that. And uh, someone apparently, <laughs> apparently with a lot of time on their hands, uh, went through the entire Bible and counted every single time a command appeared, even if it was a repeated command, and came up with 6,848 commands. Uh, that, that, they argue, is the exhaustive biblical ethic of life. And to many, really, isn't that's what the Bible is, right? The Bible is just a collection of morals, uh, that if we follow these morals, then we will become, quote, good people, right? Sometimes parents who have very little, if any, understanding of the gospel will bring their kids to church for that. And we hear this all the time. They'll bring their kids to church so that they can get their morals, all 6,848 of them, right? And unfortunately... Being a, quote, good person, person is not Christianity. Uh, and so we'll get to that disconnect in just a bit. Um, but for now, I don't know about you, but 6,848 is a dizzying number. I mean, I, it, it reminds me kind of like when I was in high school, well, not high school, when I was in school, um, and I had to read the bronze bow. Did y'all have to read the bronze bow at any point? I had all summer to read the bronze bow. But did I read the bronze bow? No. And here I am three days before school starts, and I'm like, is there like a cliff note? So I'm calling my friends, can you just summarize it for me? What do I need to know? Well, thankfully this morning, Jesus is giving us a gift uh, that if we would just receive it, it would, it's a really good gift. Uh, he is, he's doing just that for us. He's summarizing. He says, look, look all, the, the entire biblical ethic of life. At the end of the day, all the commands can be summarized just in two. We can remember two things, right? Just, just two. Love God, love your neighbor. Everything else, as has been said many times, everything else is just a commentary on those two things throughout the Bible. Everything else is the working out of what that looks like. And to better explain what Jesus meant, uh, Jesus told a story, which is one of the most well-known stories of all time. Uh, when it comes to the question of how does this, like, how does this love thing work, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan is the go-to passage. And yet, though it's well known, it's not always well understood. Uh, because as we read it, it's so easy to get tangled up in us trying to be the Good Samaritan. What do I need to do to be the Good Samaritan? That we miss the point that we are not the Samaritan. That Jesus is the Samaritan in the parable, okay? Jesus is the one who reaches out in compassion to you where you are right now. And he is the one. And so to miss that is to miss the gospel, which coincidentally also misses the only true motivation we have to freely love God and love our neighbor. Um, and so with that, let's, let's read our passage. Let's see what Jesus has to teach us this morning. This is God's word, Luke 10. Start in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, What's written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer answered, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus replied with a story. He said, A man was going down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, whatever more you need, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Well, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. Since God's word, as has been said earlier, the grass withers, the flowers fade, uh, our bodies fade, our mind, minds fade, our crypto wallets fade, right? Um, but God's word doesn't fade. Uh, it's eternal. So 2,000 years ago, a lawyer stood up. It's always a lawyer, Right? A lawyer stood up, and he's going to take Jesus to task. A lawyer stood up and asked Jesus the million-dollar question. It's, look, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Just, just tell me. Tell me what I need to do. And Jesus said, well, you're the lawyer, right? You've read the law. Back then, it wasn't the Constitution they read, but they read the law of Moses, the law of God. So you, you've read the law. How would, how would you interpret the law? How would you answer that question? And the lawyer, to his credit, knew his stuff because he started off with, what's known as the Shema. And you know how in Sunday school, uh, if you don't know the answer to any questions, it's just a good safe bet to just start with Jesus, right? You know? Well, to the Jews, uh, if you didn't know the answer, you would just start with the Shema, right? Shema. Shema was Judaism 101. Synagogue services began with the Shema. Every morning, you, you and your family would wake up and you would recite the Shema together. Uh, it's what we heard this morning that John read. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, the Lord is one. And so this is a, a bold declaration that Yahweh, that the Lord is to be worshipped, not Baal, not Allah, not Vishnu, not Buddha, uh, not your kids, not your stuff, not even your fantasy football running back, okay? And then after it said, it said, love you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And the alls were key there. Uh, so in short, they believed, the ancient person believed, that God called them to love God with every ounce of their being, physical, emotional, spiritual. So not just Sunday morning, you in your church clothes, singing about Jesus, you, but like you at work. And you on the golf course, and you at the girls' night out when there's two-for-one margaritas, it's, it's everything, like 
your sense of humor, your intellect, your passions, your goals, your everything is, is directed towards, towards the love of the Lord. And then the lawyer took that good command, the Shema, to love God with reckless abandon. And then he joined it with another command from Leviticus 19, also John read, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's it. You've nailed it. You've nailed the data. You have the right information. Which, by the way, if Jesus were to ask us the same question today, I wonder what we might say. Um, If Jesus were to ask, what is the sum of what the Bible teaches, what, how do you think North American Christians might answer that? Um, well, growing up in my church, we might have heard, well, you just be real good and be real nice and you'll be okay. Um, and this is speculation, but, but could it be kind of like this lawyer that, that we are really heavily influenced really kind of by our political leanings and political biases that it, you know, I'd imagine many would answer, well, our first duty is what we care for the poor, obviously. We care for the needy. Let's enact justice. And others might say, well, our first duty is to defend freedom at all cost. And then many well-informed Christians might even say, well, our first duty is is to serve the Lord. It's to obey the Lord. And listen, all of those can be good biblical pursuits but this morning, Jesus is saying all that, like all that stuff is just secondary. So Westminster and, and friends, Jesus and all of the scriptures say our first duty, our first duty is to love the Lord. Every proverb, every prophet, everything finds its goal in the one commandment to love. And if, for instance, in Galatians, Paul said, for if Christ Je- in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Romans, he said, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then there's, of course, the most famous uh, passage on, on love in all of the world, right? 1 Corinthians 13. But before the part that we usually have read that we know in you know, weddings, before that part, Paul wrote something else. And the Corinthians were starting to kind of think that they were hot stuff because they had some you know, gifts and some abilities and some of them could speak in tongues. And it was just, it was just they, they were kind of starting to be puffed up. And so Paul stopped them before we get to the love is patient, love is kind. He said, listen, you, you can be super passionate about doing things for the Lord. Heck, you can go be a foreign missionary in a hostile place and you can be burned at the stake for the Lord as a martyr. And yet, if you don't have love, so you, you got nothing. At Westminster, we can have the best children's ministry, uh, the most vibrant women's discipleship in town. We can have, the, I think we said this before, we can have the prettiest church building in all of Greenwood. And yet, if we're not a people who are marked by love, of God and love to others, we've, we've missed it. Like, if that's not the case, like I don't even know what we're doing right now. We're just kind of playing, playing church. And so this can't be emphasized enough. At the end of the day, the only thing that counts is love. All failures in life are failures of love. And so we, you know, we've talked about the early church many times about how it was neighborly love that the early church turn the world upside down. You know, the Christians not only cared for their sick, but they cared for everybody else's sick as well. And 
during this time, you know, the emperors, during the time that they were persecuting and trying to kill Christians, the emperor also had advisors who were writing to them saying to the effect that they're going out and researching all these Christians and what they're doing, and they're writing the emperor back saying, Christians may be the best citizens we have, and we're trying to kill them. Neighbor love set the world on fire. You know, look, it's through simple neighbor love. Like, we have elevated Mother Teresa to, like, the level of a saint, literally. And she won the Nobel Peace Prize. Everyone was blown away, and they're asking her, how how do you do it? How How can we have world peace? How can we love our neighbor? And she said, very simple answer. She said, go home, love your family. Just go home, love your family. All right, well, so far, so good. The lawyer, he said, I, I know all that. Love, love God, love neighbor. He knew all that. And in fact, uh, like any serious Jew um, during this time, he not only knew it, but he also, so that everyone else would know how much his life was radically in the pursuit of love of God and love of neighbor, he wore these outward symbols. You know, he, he took Moses' words in Deuteronomy 6, literally, where it says, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds and tie them as a symbol on your hands, bind them on your foreheads. Most serious Jews had this leather box that they would put, if they were, if they were right-handed, they would put it on their left arm um, and point it towards their heart, and then they would have a tiny leather box called a phylactery that they would literally strap to their forehead, right between their, their eyes, as a symbol that they were serious about this loving God and loving neighbor stuff. And yet, look, before we start feeling too smug, we, we must know that we, we've got our phylacteries today too, don't we? Uh, Christians have phylacteries, um, outward things that you know, signal to the world just how serious we are this time about this whole God thing. Um, you know, we've got bumper stickers and T-shirts and coffee mugs, and you know, our town has a huge cross. You know, we're real serious uh, in Greenwood. And so, like this lawyer, we can know it, and we can have all the virtue signal, signals that we are even serious about it, and yet, as we find with this lawyer, knowing and even virtue signaling doesn't translate into actual heart change, does it? Not necessarily. I think I've shared this, but y'all remember years ago, they had this huge uh, initiative to start putting caloric information on everything. Y'all remember that? Like, it was one day, it's like, it's on everything now. And you go into the restaurant, and it's, Chick-fil-A even has it up there. How many calories is in your sandwich? Right. And so when polled, I think it was over 85% of Americans, and if you can get 85% of Americans to agree on anything, that's pretty good. 80, over 85% of Americans said that it was helpful to have that information. It's good to know. All right. Well, after this initiative, they did a seven-year study on it to find if this, what, what good this was doing. And they found that all of that caloric information resulted in zero change in America's eating habits. Um, because knowing doesn't translate into doing, does it? Um, in the book, The Art of Neighboring, these the authors tell this group of pastors that went down to meet with the mayor to ask how could we how could we partner with the city to help be you know best be salt and light as as Christians, and the mayor said um, that the majority of the issues their community face would be eliminated or drastically reduced if they could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors, and the mayor said when when neighbors are in relationship with each other the elderly shut in next door gets gets taken care of by their neighbors. 
uh, the at-risk kid down the streets get, gets mentored by a dad who lives on the same block and so on. Well, the mayor didn't know this, but every pastor was embarrassed because they went in asking how they could serve the city, and the mayor essentially told them that if, you know, if Christians would just take the second half of the Great Commandment seriously, we, we'd be okay. There's a disconnect, right? In 1800s England, you know, England was literally the most Christian nation on earth in the 1800s. And yet when William Wilberforce saw slavery as a love-your-neighbor issue, the only people standing by his side were what religious people called the born-again nuts. So merely knowing that we're to love God and knowing we're to love neighbor isn't enough because even here the lawyer, even though he knew this, he's looking for a loophole. Well, Jesus, just can you give me just like the bare minimum bar? Who is my neighbor in? Who exactly am I supposed to love? And so that he and that we would get it, Jesus told a story, a well-known story. A man was walking to Jericho. He got mugged. He was stripped. He was beaten and left half for dead on the road. And, well, a priest was walking by, and the priest passed by without even stopping. In fact, the priest went kind of around him so as not to make contact with this man. So did the Levite. Neither one stopped. And, and this is kind of like the pastor and the youth director. These are two people that kind of work in the the church, right? They, <laughs> love and mercy is literally part of their job description, and yet they both pass on the other side. And so everyone listening to Jesus knew what was coming next because there was a lot of these stories happening during this time. Um, lots of stories went like this. The pastor didn't stop. The youth director didn't stop. The chairman of the deacons didn't even stop. But you know who stopped? It was that regular old church member, that lady that sits up in the balcony. She stopped, and she did what those pastors will not do. That's kind of how the typical story went. But this is where Jesus subverted their expectation. (laughs) Jesus said it wasn't sweet old lady on the back row of the church, but it was your hated enemy, a filthy Samaritan, uh, one who, if we were to be honest, in pride, most Jews wouldn't even allow him to help them. So a Samaritan walked up to the man, and he had compassion And he bound his wounds, and he gave him food, and he put him on his animal, and he brought him to an end, and then he paid for his care. And we we see that this Samaritan inconvenienced himself. Um, He entered into that man's suffering, and he went all the way in for the welfare of this man. And and again, I I was raised being told, don't be that busy priest. You know, if you see somebody on the side of the road, if you can, stop and help Um, Don't be that priest. Don't be that Levite. Go out and just be compassionate. Show mercy. Go the extra mile. Be like the Good Samaritan, right? But there's a huge problem with that. That type of teaching is assuming that the Holy Spirit is in you, empowering you to do that. Because if that that hasn't happened, not only does this sound like a whole lot of work, but if we're not in Christ, then being the Samaritan isn't even on the table. And so Jesus' answer wasn't to give this lawyer something that he had to do to get into heaven, but rather it was to break him and to say that the only way that you can get into heaven and thus do any of this stuff is to receive to be loved by the Lord and for you to see yourself as in need of his sovereign love for you. And so naturally, none of us are the Samaritan. Um, I mean, truly. I know we, we, we can put on a good show, but like... In ourselves, we don't have that kind of love to give. And so naturally, do you know who you are in this parable? 
apart from God's grace, is, is we're the guy naked, beaten, lying half dead on the side of the road. I mean, and what a picture of us in our sin. Um, that, and we have to see this, that, that naturally we have no shot. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And like this traveler, our only hope is the mercy and grace of someone else. That we need someone else outside of us to come in and rescue us and save us. And, and so do you want to know what Christianity is about? I know most of you know this. It is not about being a good person, being a moral person. No, it, it's seeing Jesus coming down the road and finding you in your brokenness and in your despair. And it's experiencing the fact that He didn't just bind your wounds, but, but He took your wounds on Himself. He took your shame on Himself. And He not only risked His life like the Samaritan did, but He gave His life freely so that you could live life truly. Okay? It's seeing that, that on the cross He was stripped naked so that you could be clothed in His righteousness. And He didn't pay your medical bills. No, He paid your debt to God for our sin. So that in Him, even at your very worst, even in your utmost depravity, you can be welcomed in as beloved. So Westminster, experiencing the never letting go, never walking out on you love of God, that is your conversion. And when that happens, we're told that the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life, and the, the Spirit starts producing fruit in you, of which it isn't a coincidence that in the Bible, the very first fruit mentioned is what? Love. Love. So again, it's not, y'all, let's go out and let's love God and let's love our neighbor, rah, rah, rah. No, it's dwell in Jesus' love for you. Which, could you please know that? Dwell in Jesus' love for you. Because if you do that, you're going to find yourself doing some crazy things, like repenting of your sin <laughs> and loving your neighbor. In response, we can love God with all that we are. And then we can start asking this question that Christians ask. It's, it's, well, what does love require of me? You know, what does it require of me to love y'all as, as a congregation? What does it require you to love that neighbor, that next-door neighbor that drives you up the wall? What, what does love require of you? And listen, our world does not make neighbor love easy. The pace of neighbor love, the pace of bearing others' burdens, and it, it's slower than we want. We live in a world plagued by what John Ortberg calls hurry sickness, and as we'll see next week with with Josh preaching, that we can be like Martha, busy, 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 all, with many things. But as Ortberg says, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Like You know how it feels when you're talking to someone and you know that they do not have time to talk to you. They're trying to get out. They're trying to get away. You don't feel very loved in, in that moment, do you? Love always takes time, and time is the one thing hurried people just don't have. So what does love require of you? What does love require of your schedule? Well, concerning this topic, and as we close, Frederick Buechner said, the love for equals is a human thing. You know, friend for friend, brother for brother, sister for sister. It, it, it's to love what is lovely. He says, with that type of love, the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. This is love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, who are sick, the, the failures, loving the unlovely, this is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. 
The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where you fail. To rejoice without envy with those who are rejoicing. This is the love of the poor for the rich. The world is always bewildered by its saints. But then he says there is the love of the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mock you and threaten you and inflict pain upon you. It's the tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. And this love conquers the world, he says. So friends, having been served by the great Samaritan Jesus, may he empower you, may he empower us to go out and to love the Lord with all of our heart and all of our soul and strength and mind, and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen? Amen. Well, let me pray for us. Father, may we dwell and experience you reaching out and loving us like this Samaritan. Father, forgive us for being so busy that we just miss it. So busy that we miss it, uh, we fail to see uh, your love. And so, Father, now as we come to the table, uh, show us how these, these common elements, these common things, um, are a means of your grace to your people. Set them aside uh, so that we can, we can dine with you. And Lord, maybe this be a beautiful moment uh, in all of our souls. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.